turn to Job chapter 32. We've been studying uh, the book of Job, and we've seen the calamity that introduces the book when Job uh, loses his uh, wealth, he loses his family, with the exception of his wife, he loses his children, he loses uh, his health as he's smitten with a terrible skin disease. And uh, the background of this, uh, that Satan had charged that men do not worship God for himself, particularly this man, Job, who was exemplary in, in his walk with the Lord, only served God because God blessed him. And that if God let Satan take the things that Job had, uh, Job would turn his back on God. He would curse him. No longer trust him a servant. And so God gives Satan permission to carry this through. And in Job, the cause of true religion, in a sense, is being tested. And uh, God's honor is on trial. Uh, Job uh, comes through this and... uh, His initial response is just tremendous. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then Job's three friends come. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they seek to comfort. But their approach is, to your knees, Job, confess whatever it is that you did, what terrible sin that brought this on you. You're obviously a hypocrite. And Job says, I have no such speech to make. Uh, I have not spared a prayer. I have not turned away anyone uh, who was in need from my table. This is the way Joseph Parker phrases Job's response. And uh, as this persists, the interaction between the three friends and Job, this is a tremendous trial, but Job maintains uh, his position that he has not done some grievous sin, and uh, his faith rises to new heights as he, in spite of this uh, whole uh, mass of problems, says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, and I know that my Redeemer lives. He's convinced God will vindicate him in the uh, final moments of uh, judgment day or at some point God will vindicate him and prove that Job was not suffering due to hypocrisy. We come uh, to a point in our book where the interaction between Job and his three friends ceases. Job said all he has to say and they've said all they have to say in chapter 30. One, the last phrase, the words of Job are ended. And the first verse in chapter 32, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, at this point, a fourth friend is introduced named Elihu, who apparently has been there all along but hasn't been mentioned. And it could be that there are others there. But Elihu is introduced. And uh, he... uh, proceeds to give his opinion of the matter. Now, Job doesn't answer Elihu, although 
Elihu's opinion is given from chapters 32 through 37. No answer from Job. Different views are held as to why no answer. One view is that Elihu is not saying anything new. Thus, no answer from Job. A second view is Elihu is saying something new, and Job acknowledges by not answering that Elihu is correct. I believe that, uh, that that second view is right. Elihu claims to be seeing something new. It says that Elihu is uh, mad at Job, angry at Job, but also at Job's three friends. In chapter 32, verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. And it says, Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. And in verse 3, Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. They couldn't answer Job, and yet they condemned Job. He claims to be saying something new. He claims to want to justify Job in chapter 33 and verse 32. He says that. And also at the end in chapter 42, when God confronts Job's three friends with having spoken that which was not right about God, he doesn't say a word about Elihu having done that, which would set apart Elihu from the other three. It's the view of Matthew Henry, of W.H. Green, and his very helpful little commentary, Job's Triumph Over Satan, and of John Stott in a sermon, and others, that, that Elihu is saying something new. And uh, in effect, as Green says, the part that Elihu is playing, the impression may be left with Job and with others, that because his controversy with his friends was right, he was maintaining a proper perspective that he wasn't guilty of some terrible sin, that his controversy with God was right. He had a controversy with God, feeling that God has not dealt justly with him. That was not right, and that needs correcting. Elihu steps forward to correct this. Also, Elihu sheds some light on further purposes of God in Job's suffering. One purpose was to vindicate God's cause on earth, but a second purpose was to accomplish good in Job's soul. Uh, that through this process, Job's faith has risen to new heights as he's learned to trust God under these circumstances. And uh, that he steps forward to give some further answers, which are provided in part by Elihu, not fully, but in part. Elihu tells us that his reason for waiting to speak was his youth, that he wasn't as old as these other men. In verse 4, Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. He says uh, in uh, verse 6, Job, uh, you wanted to appear before God, and uh, let me be in the stead of God. This is 33.6. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. You wanted to have God answer. Let me take the part of God. 
and seek to speak for him. Now, he offers some counsel uh, to Job about Job's attitude and all this. He says, Job, here's your contention. Here's what you've said in verse 8 of chapter 33. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy word, saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. You've said you're innocent, and you've said, in spite of that, God has counted you as his enemy. Verse 10, Behold, he findeth occasions against me, he counteth me for his enemy. Now, he said, Job, in saying this, you are wrong. This is my counsel, says Elihu. You have stated something that was not so. He doesn't say that Job was not just. That's what his friends have said. Job, you're wicked. He doesn't say that. But he says, Job, in this thing you are not just. Verse 12. Behold, in this thou art not just. And he gives some considerations that Job should wrestle with. Number one. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Matthew Henry says that ought to settle it. Just that one thought ought to make us stop when we start complaining against God and his dealings with us, that God is greater than man. It's folly to quarrel with him, and it's wrong to quarrel with him. That if he's greater, he's greater not only in power, but he's greater in wisdom, in justice, in holiness, in goodness. And... uh, He does these things in accordance with those attributes of his. He is good as he does them. He is just as he does them. He's greater than man. A second consideration, God is not accountable to man. In verse 13, Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. You can't arraign God at the bar of your justice and call him to account Job. He's under no obligation to show us a reason for his actions. And it's daring impiety for us to ask him to. We're to believe that he acts in accordance with his attributes. Lamentations 3.33 says, God does not willingly afflict nor grieve the children of men. He does afflict and grieve. But he doesn't do it Willingly, He doesn't delight in doing it. He's not cruel. He does it with a good purpose. We've got to act on that. We've got to believe that. A man was visiting a home for deaf and dumb children. And as he went about the home looking at their situation, it sort of got to him. And later he was to speak to them by writing on the blackboard. They were all gathered in the room, and he was there, and and he just wrote up there what was on his heart. Why is it that I can hear and speak, and you cannot hear or speak? He just wrote that question on the blackboard. And the children sat there and looked at it, and they didn't know. And they just sat there with this great big mystery, and tears began to come down their cheeks. One little fellow walked up there and wrote, Even so, Father. 
for so it seemed good in thy sight. That's it. God is good. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. That's in effect what Elihu is saying. He points out God is greater than man, and you cannot call him to account. And he points out that God's general object in his dealings with men is to rescue us from the pit, to keep us from perishing. And he uses his word and he uses affliction in the process of carrying out that good purpose. He uses his word, verse 14 of chapter 33, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed. God speaks, and in those days he spoke primarily through dreams or visions. Now he speaks primarily through his word. His purpose is to turn man. But man is dull of hearing. Man perceiveth it not. And yet, he does cause men to hear. In verse 16, Then he openeth the ears of men, and sealeth their instruction. Why? That he may withdraw man from his purpose, and hide pride from man. Humble man. Turn him from his sin, especially the sin of pride. He keepeth back his soul from the pit, and his life from perishing by the sword, meaning the sword of God's wrath. That's the purpose of him speaking by his word. But he uses a second instrument, says Elihu, chastening. Verse 19, he is chastened also with pain upon his bed, and the multitude of his bones with strong pain. The effect of this chastening, so that his life abhorreth bread. He doesn't feel like eating. Verse 21, his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out, which is the way Job looked as Elihu speaks. Verse 23, if there be a messenger with this man who's suffering, an interpreter, one among a thousand to show unto man God's uprightness, then God is gracious unto him. Elihu says, Job, you know, when a man's going through affliction, one of the most precious things in the world can be somebody who can come and sit down and reason with him and interpret to him what's happening. That's of immense value. And if as a result of this the man comes to repentance, well, then God is able to remove the affliction. It's accomplished its purpose. This is one of God's general ways of dealing. He says, uh, If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show man God's uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit, to hell. I have found a ransom. What is the ransom that God finds that enables him to deliver men from going down to the pit? Well, it's vague at this point, but as you go through Scripture from this point, it becomes clearer and clearer what the ransom is that enables God to deliver men. In Mark 10:45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom that God himself would come up with would be his son. He sent his word. He sends affliction. He sends his son, all with the purpose of our not perishing. And the Son would come and bear the guilt of our sins, pay for it in full. And when we trust in the Son as our ransom, the one who died for our sins, instead of trusting that we don't need such a ransom, but just trust in Christ as our ransom, and turn from our pride, humble ourselves, become obedient, surrender our wills to God, then we are delivered. And God gives the order, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. And often uh, he is able at this point to withdraw the chastisement, or he does. Not always, but often. Verse 25, his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy, God's face with joy. It says God, Job, is looking for men with that attitude of heart, that humble attitude, who are listening to God's word, who are yielded now and humbled under affliction. That's the attitude God searches for as he looks at the human race. Verse 27, He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profiteth me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see light. Lo, all these things God worketh oftentimes with men. This is God's way. You know, if I were to ask you how many of you came to Christ through affliction, through problems, would you please raise your hand? If I were to ask you to do that, I wonder how many hands would go up. I'll tell you how many hands would go up. About one-third of the congregation would raise their hand. If I ask that, I've done this on occasion. And this is one of God's general ways of bringing men, of rescuing men from the pit. Has it had that effect in you? Maybe you're here and you're undergoing affliction. How are you responding? He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profiteth me not. That's the attitude he's looking for. Then he will deliver him. Now, we see the approach that Elihu takes here in his counsel with Job. And this is different uh, from what Job's friends had taken. The three comforters, you, you find that Eliphaz, one of the three, had said something similar to this that sounded similar in 517 when he said, Blessed is the man whom the Lord chastens. But as you follow it on through, they are saying something different from what Elihu is saying. 
W.H. Green puts it like this. Suffering is to Eliphaz, that was one of the three comforters, and to the other comforters, in its proper nature punitive, and it represented God's displeasure against sin. Suffering is to Elihu a curative, and it represents God's affectionate concern for the true welfare of the sufferer. The two ideas are as far apart as the poles. On the one view, God, an afflicting man, regards him as a sinner and treats him as such. His sufferings are tantamount to a sentence of condemnation. On the other, God regards rather his capacity for goodness and seeks his purification and improvement. The development of the doctrine of the friends led directly to their gross and unfounded charges of hypocrisy and guilt. Elihu's teaching is perfectly consistent with Job's true character as affirmed by God himself. Uh, he doesn't cast reflection on the genuineness of Job's faith, and uh, he sees a gracious God by his severity purging away dross and refining Job's faith. Now, we see Job, uh, Elihu's counsel to Job about Job's attitude. Second, Elihu's correction of Job's exaggerated statements. In uh, chapter 34, the first statement and the answer. Verse 5, For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. The answer, verse 7, What man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water, says Elihu. Job, you're scorning God. You sit in the seat of the scornful when you talk like that. In uh, verse 8, which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men. Not that Job had done that, but Job was walking in the counsel of the ungodly when he talked like that. He was acting like wicked men. He was speaking like wicked men, and he was strengthening the hands of wicked men by saying, I am righteous, and God has taken away my judgment. God has not dealt fairly with me. And then uh, the second statement and the answer in verse 9, For Job has said, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself in God. Now, Job didn't say exactly that. What Job said in 9.22 was, he said, God destroys the righteous along with the wicked. Uh, he was speaking of calamity, let's say a flood or something, when it happens. The wicked man drowns and the righteous man drowns. When a flood hits a city, all the Christians don't float, do they? Well, that's, that was the element of truth in what Job said, but it wasn't stated carefully enough, and the implication is God is unjust and it doesn't serve. It doesn't profit you to serve God. He destroys the righteous along with the wicked. And... Uh, so Elihu wants to correct that statement. And he says in verse 10, Hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. God doesn't do that. Verse 11, For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. In other words, God ministers justice to all. Now, he says it was 
totally inappropriate, Job, for you to speak in that fashion. That's not the way you talk to God or about God. In verse 17, Shall even he that hateth right govern every man compared to God hates right? Shall man govern instead of God? If we say he's not doing it right, that's what we're claiming. And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the person of princes? That's not appropriate talk to say that God perverts judgment. You want to know how you ought to talk? Says Elihu, here's what you ought to say, Job, in uh, verse 31. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me, if I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Now there's a wonderful capsule picture of true repentance. Surely the thing to do, the way to talk, the way to be, is to say, God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend anymore. I purpose in my heart to obey you. And I, short of that, you don't have real repentance. Real repentance is the full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. I have borne chastisement, I will offend no more. That which I see not, those sins that I'm not conscious of, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, said David. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's the way to respond, says Elihu. Now, Elihu... uh, desires that this matter be thoroughly examined. In verse 36, My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. As you read that, your initial impression is, Elihu is saying, I hope, Job, that this trial continues until you are thoroughly humble. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I want this matter thoroughly investigated. Uh, And let's get to the root of it. And Job, I want you and I want all men of understanding to acknowledge that you have spoken inappropriately. You've spoken for wicked men when you've spoken like that. That's what he's saying. Now, uh, in this... uh, these chapters, we see the counsel about his attitude, and we see the correction of his exaggerated statements. Then he has a continuation on God's purpose and discipline, which is very similar to what he's already said about God's discipline, but let's just touch on it in chapter 36 and look briefly at it. He speaks of God's use of discipline with the righteous in chapter 36, verse 7. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous. Verse 8. And if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction, 
If God binds them with affliction, the righteous, what's his purpose? Verse 9, he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. God, when he afflicts us, intends to show us our transgressions. And through such affliction, he disposes us, says Elihu, to receive instruction. And verse 10, he openeth also their ear to discipline. The purpose is to turn us from iniquity, and commandeth that they return from iniquity. Now, God removes discipline upon repentance, generally. Verse 11, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword, meaning the sword of God's wrath. They shall die without knowledge. Matthew Henry says, if you die without knowledge, as Elihu is using the phrase, you die without grace. You go to hell. Now, I thought he was speaking with about the righteous here and his use of discipline with the righteous. He was. The point is, if you do not obey under such chastening, then you evidence that you're not truly righteous, but that you're a hypocrite. And then he goes on to speak of how discipline affects the hypocrite, the contrast between the righteous and the hypocrite, the effect that discipline has. In uh, verse 13, But the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath. They cry not when he bindeth them. You're going through suffering? You're going through affliction? How are you responding? Is it softening your heart? Or is it hardening your heart? The hypocrite cries not under affliction. He just hardens his heart. He says, well, if that's the way God's going to deal with me, then I'm through with God. And it doesn't turn. It doesn't turn him or humble him. Not really. If he does turn, it's a hypocritical turning, a rubber ball repentance, that it returns to its original shape when the pressure is released. The contrast on the effect and the effect of discipline on the hypocrite and the truly righteous man, the one who truly trusts in Christ. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And in hardening the clay, it shows that it is clay. How have you responded under discipline? What effect has it had? Discipline is such a blessing because it shows us whether or not we're real Christians as to how we respond, whether we're clay or whether we're wax. Now, he mentions uh, God's use of discipline. He applies this to Job's case in verse 15 of this chapter 36. He says, he delivereth the poor in his affliction, and openeth their ears in oppression. Even so would he have removed thee out of the strait into a broad place where there is no straightness. It says, Job, if you had responded better, I believe, Elihu says, that this trial you're undergoing would have ended some time ago. And he says this, Verse 17, But thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. 
judgment and justice take hold on thee. You're bringing judgment on yourself like a wicked man does. You're not wicked, but that's the effect of what you're doing by quarreling with God about his dealings with you. Don't quarrel with him. Yield, Joe. Trust him. Don't question his dealings with you. Now, we see uh, Job doesn't reply to all of this. And I believe he doesn't because he acknowledges the validity of it. And so he's been partly delivered from some of the things that he's in error about. Now, the full extrication from the snare of Satan, God reserves to himself in the final chapters when God personally confronts Job. We see some tremendous thing in this section where Elihu speaks. One thing is we see God's general purpose in affliction. That God, his great purpose for man is to save man from going down to the pit. That's what God's about. He uses his word, he uses affliction, and he sent his son as a ransom. What about it? Have I responded to his word? Have I responded to his dealings with me? Have I trusted in that ransom that God has provided? That's God's great object in his work with men. Have you responded? Have you trusted him? Are you relying on Christ alone? And then we see how we are to respond under affliction. We are not to question God's dealings with us. We're not to kick at the pricks. We're to yield. We're to trust him. Benjamin Smoke was a German pastor who underwent a series of tragedies. First thing that happened was that his parish had a fire sweep through it. Many of the homes were burned and the church was burned. They rebuilt the church. Second thing that happened was his children and his wife were killed by a plague that came through the country. The third thing that happened in quick succession, he himself was afflicted with paralysis, laid up in bed, and as if that wasn't enough, he went blind. In that, he wrote a hymn, My Jesus, as thou wilt. Oh, may thy will be mine. Into thy hand of love I would my all resign. Through sorrow or through joy, conduct me as thine own, and help me still to say, My Lord, thy will be done. My Jesus, as thou wilt, though seen through many a tear, let not my star of hope grow dim or disappear. Since thou on earth hast wept, and sorrowed oft alone, if I must weep with thee, my Lord, thy will be done. My Jesus, as thou wilt, all shall be well with me. Each changing future scene I gladly trust with thee. Straight to my home above I travel calmly on, and sing in life or death, my Lord, thy will be done. And notice how he's responding there. He's accepting it. He's accepting this trial. 
Amy Carmichael wrote a poem about how to respond in trial and the ways that people respond. One person, she says, tries to forget, but she says, vain, vain the word, not in forgetting, lieth peace. Another person uh, tries activity, but she says, vain, vain the word, not in endeavor, activity, lieth peace. Another says, uh, I will withdraw and be quiet. She said, not in aloofness, lieth peace. Another says, I will submit, I am defeated. She says, not in mere submission, lieth peace. But, he said, I will accept the breaking sorrow, which God tomorrow will to his son explain. Then did the turmoil deep within him cease. Not vain the word, not vain, for in acceptance lieth peace. Catherine Marshall, you remember, lost her husband, Peter Marshall, and she writes about it in her book, Beyond Ourselves, and she talks about where peace is found. The difference between mere submission or resignation and peace, she says, and, and, and acceptance, she says, there's a difference between acceptance and resignation. One is positive, the other negative. Acceptance is creative, resignation sterile. Resignation is barren of faith in the love of God. It says, Grievous circumstances have come to me. There is no escaping them. I am only one creature, an alien in a vast, unknowable creation. I have no heart left even to rebel, so I'll just resign myself to what apparently is the will of God. I'll even try to make a virtue out of patient submission. So resignation lies down quietly in the dust of a universe from which God seems to have fled, and the door of hope swings shut. But turn the coin over. Acceptance says, I trust the goodwill, the love of my God. I'll open my arms and my understanding to what he has allowed to come to me. Since I know that he means to make all things work together for good, I consent to this present situation with hope for what the future will bring. In acceptance lieth peace. What's your attitude of heart? Why not make it, my Lord, thy will be done. If you've never said, my Lord, in the sense of I receive you as my Lord and Savior, start there. Let us pray. As our hearts abide, it may be that you're here and have been undergoing affliction. Many of you have in one form or another. How have you been responding? Respond to the counsel of Elihu and to the example of Benjamin Schmoke and say, My Lord, thy will be done. And if you've never personally committed your life to Christ, why not do that today? You're going down to the pit 
And God does not desire that. He sent his word, he sent affliction, he sends his son. Why not receive his son as your ransom? Pray in your heart if you want to genuinely give yourself to Jesus Christ. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming to be my ransom. And I trust you as my ransom. I trust in God to forgive my sins on the basis of your death. I surrender to you as my master. My Lord, thy will be done. Amen.